My name is John, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I feel good. But I see an awful lot of people out there that feel good, too, because I can, I can feel it. I am so delightful, delighted. I'm delightful, too, but I'm delighted. You just need to get to know me a little bit, and you'll know how delightful I really am. But I am absolutely delighted that I learned a lesson uh, a few years ago, quite a few years ago, from a magnificent lady. She happened to be an Alamon and not my wife. Elsa taught me that sobriety was not competition. And based upon the fabulous things that have been said here by the speakers, I am so grateful that I don't have to compete with them. But damn it, I want to be good. But I realize that there's not a hell of a lot more that I can offer than what it is that I have to offer. And, uh, and I particularly enjoyed listening to my family abuse me. I... <laughs> they wouldn't have cared a few years ago. Alcoholism is quite a disease. And uh, one of the things that I be, I've become aware of is the fact that the longer you are sober, the more aware you are of how sick you were. And, and that is still in the process of uncovering for me. And I was particularly taken away by our speaker last night. <laughs> and he was talking about having fun. I wanted to have fun. But I started looking because, God damn, it seemed as if he had so much fun out. I, I was questioning why he sobered up, you know. One of the things that I, that I went home last night and, and, and it started getting to me because uh, I couldn't remember having it. Any kind of fun, whether it be fun or fun. Uh, and I didn't know what it was. And, and, I, and so I started digging into my own stuff and trying to find out what it was. Because, uh, you see, I'm one of these guys who seem to have been born old. God, I was old. Hell, I didn't get reborn or have any youth until I came into sobriety. But I was going through my drunkalog last night trying to, first of all, <laughs> add a little or edit it a little bit just in case I, I could get it right for you. But <laughs> God, this is the only place I know of where you can stand and make a fool out of yourself and just have a wonderful time. <laughs> I am a retired sort of person. I didn't start drinking until I was 18 years old. Ah, oh, I tried to make up for that, but <laughs> there, there's a rumor that goes around that the alcoholics seem to know when it was that they took their, their first drink, and, uh, and I know when it was. It was in the middle of March. Uh, as a matter of fact, <laughs> it was in the Green Frog in El Paso, Texas, and I was introduced to a, uh, a bottle of Jack Daniels. And, oh, it tasted good. Uh, and it, and the, the only way I can describe it is the fact that the, the monkey's went off on my back. Now, no, I didn't grow it into be eight feet tall or, or suddenly become Mr. Wright and, and chase women and do all of those things. I just felt that this, this load was off of my back. Uh, now, I've never been a socially inclined person, and I still am not. I don't know that my social skills are much more better than a, <laughs> than a rattlesnake. Uh, 
but I just felt lighter. You know, I have been a loner all of my life and, and, and in the process of... And that's not because I, I was lonely. It's because of, uh, in the process of doing an inventory in sobriety, I found out why it is that I'm a loner. Okay, and it's just one of those decisions that a little boy made. A little tiny kid, and that was me when I was just so bright and shiny and, and so pretty as little kids. Only little kids can be in. And, and it was probably the great rejection of my entire life. But the little boy made a nice decision at that particular time. And, and the little guy uh, was in kindergarten. And, and in kindergarten, I don't know if they still have it now, but they had in, back in those days, they had a, a, a thing called rhythm band. And that's where all the little slobs would beat on sticks and shake tambourines and, and, and bells. And they wouldn't let me do it. Because I couldn't keep the sticks on time. And so the little guy sits on the side of the, the, the everybody, all these kids in a circle and are beating hell out of things and just having a wonderful time. And I'm sitting there looking at him and say, I don't want to. And that was the point I was making is that, that I have never felt rejected in that sense of the word. I have been different then. And it's not out of sorrow. It's not anything other than a decision a little guy made. And maybe that's part of what was taken off of me when I, when, when I picked up the bottle of Jack Daniels and felt so good. I just felt lighter. And I was a hell of a fighter in my day. And, and, and if I had any fun period of time, that's what I was trying to remember last, last night. If, if I had some real fun, and, and, and I had fun, goddammit. I had just had a wonderful time. Uh, I started out backwards drinking. Uh, I drank as long as I could in El Paso. They transferred me back to New York. Uh, not into New York, into uh, a little town called Warrington, Virginia, just outside of D.C., Washington, D.C. And I was working in the Army Security Agency at that time when it wasn't quite what it is today. And <laughs> and, I, and I used to have a, a Class A pass, and I could go into, into D.C. And then I could have my version of fun. I could, uh, I had a three-day pass every weekend. I worked for and, and drink and raise hell for three days. And, and I used to go in some of the wildest places to drink and see if I could get anybody to want to fight me. And I just had a wonderful time. Just had a fabulous time. Because I, I was a, not only good, I was exceptionally fast because I didn't want anybody to hit me. And I think that's just out of inherent terror that I had. Uh, so that's what I did, and I did that for, uh, for the period of time, maybe the first couple of years of my life. Uh, until one time in Los Angeles where I was, uh, there was uh, some street activity going on, and somebody attempted to molest the lady I was with, and, and I married I was my wife, and, and as a result of that, some people had to go to the hospital, and, and somebody had to die, and, uh, and there was no more fun in, in alcohol for me. Uh, there was a sense of desperation, anger, and desperation, and, and so that was my refuge, it was my solution, it was the only solution I had, it was no fun there for me, it just was, that's the only thing I knew how to do, and because by then I had married and, and, and my, my high school sweetheart, and, and we had, uh, and she had delivered uh, our first child, our oldest girl, and, and, and I saw this, and, and, and with what had happened to me, and, and the beauty of that little child, and and, and I realized that I had to become something different. And, and I did what so many of us are quite good at. I, I changed about everything about me. And, and I went into business and I became good at my business. And, and, and I drank a lot and I become obsessed with my kids. And, and, and as each year go by, uh, 
I'd get another kid and and uh, <laughs> wound up with five of them little suckers. <laughs> and I was quite good at what I did. I drank a lot, but uh, the more successful. <laughs> I don't think I really was an ever. I don't know if I ever was a good drunk. I just drank a lot. And for that period of time, I was, God, I could drink an awful lot of booze. You know, I'm the guy that they always used to have people, I used to drive the people home because the fools couldn't carry their liquor as well as I could, and I could drink two or three times that amount. We've all gone through that stage, but <laughs> I was very successful in, in my business, and, and times were going great, and, and I was the heir apparent and, and, and really doing well, and uh, the more successful I came, became, the more I drank, and, and I loved my kids, but my wife wasn't doing it right, and, and I was... And the sense of desperation that I talk about, and knowing that, that always I have had this talent of, of screwing it up, just never getting it right. And, and, and one of the things that I used to do is, uh, obviously, and, and I'm sure that many of us have done this, is that is I'd stay away. Not because I wanted to stay away, is it that it would work better if I stayed away from my house and didn't see her so, so often and see the kids and... And then I could enjoy it more, and I wouldn't spoil it. So I used, I used to spend, stay away a lot. And, uh, and that's the way it was for me in, in the Los Angeles area. And I had these, these five little girls, and I loved them dearly, and I was truly obsessed. If I had an obsession greater than alcohol, it possibly was my children. Because, as I say, when times were tough, I didn't drink. But when times were good, I drank a lot. And I remember coming off of a running drunk one time. And listening on the telephone and having him say that, John, your wife has committed suicide. And I flipped off because I knew I had done it. That it was all my fault. And somewhere it was my little girls. I didn't know what the hell was happening to them. And I just went crazy. Just absolutely insane. And the next thing I know, I'm in the psychiatric wing of the Los Angeles General Hospital and I'm in a straitjacket. I got blood all over me and they're talking about what a crazy fool that I've been and how difficult it was to get me in that and how many people I hurt and how many walls I've torn down and, and they're debating whether they dare let me loose so they can sew me up because I'm all cut and bruised. And, and I'm laying there and I'm saying to myself, God, where's my kids? Where's my kids? Where's my kids? i got to get out of this thing and I've never in my entire life had such a feeling of, a feeling of, of, of power and I know full well that if I get out of this goddamn thing, if I can get loose, I can get out there and I can take care of my children as only I can. Because I knew that I screwed it up and I can change everything and I can get it right this time. And then I, blackness developed and, and a little while later I woke up in another room and this time I'm out of this straight jacket and I've got this leather belt on. i got both hands down here. And that feeling of intensity, the, the knowledge of power that was mine. And if I only get out of this goddamn thing, this is self-sufficiency and it's utmost just get loose with this thing, I'll get out of here and i get out there and find out where my little girls are and I'll take care of them. And so I'm laying in there and I, I get loose. And I stand up and the other inmates are just a little bit concerned because... <laughs> and I stood up and probably the truth came to me for perhaps just the first time. I couldn't do anything. I knew full well that I was a lousy father and a dreadful husband. 
and that I have failed so utterly in doing the right thing. And I knew that if I got out of this place, if I could ever get out of this place, I would get my little girls and I'd try to build a new life. And because I was a very successful businessman, I had a fine job, and, and I knew that the company perhaps would transfer me to, out of the area. So a couple nights later, my mother came to visit me. She was still alive then. And she said that I have, I was telling her about my gathering of my dreams, that I was going to gather my children together and my company would transfer me somewhere. And she said, no, they won't because they told me to tell you that you've been fired because uh, that you are a, give a bad image to the corporation. And so I took that one and I went out and I finally conned my way out of the, the psychiatric wing and went out and I loved that because I had to sign myself in several times because they wouldn't let me loose because I was too dangerous to get loose. But then I finally got released. It was without, without further need of psychiatric care. Only the alcoholics can tiptoe around the, the psychiatrists and pull that sort of crap. And I got out and I went to another big company because I was well-known in Southern California in my field. I went to this other company that knew me, had been asking me to go to work for them for a long time. And I said, okay, here I am. He said, John, I've heard about your problem. He said, no, no question about it. You will have a job. It's yours. I just have to arrange territories a little bit and come back in a couple of days. And I came back in a couple of days and he said, John, I'm sorry. He says, there are 65 employees here. And 64 of them have signed this petition that said that they will not work with you. <laughs> he tried to smile and jest and say, I was thinking about signing it too. But he didn't. And there was no way in Southern California that I could get a job. And so I had to leave Southern California and that's when I came to Northern California. And everybody knows that that solved all my problems. It was a great geographic. It's those pastors in Los Angeles that caused my problems. So Northern California I came. Now I'm one who didn't even know how to boil water. And I suddenly got five little girls, two of them in diapers, of which I, prior to this time, had never changed one. That's how macho I was. Never changed a diaper with five little kids. Isn't that sick? No, I ain't pretty shrewd, to be honest with you, but... <laughs> I had to learn. I had to cook. I had to iron. <laughs> Back in those days, uh, they didn't have a wish and wear, and so you had to iron. And, uh, and I had no voice of wear, and all I had is these girls, and they got these, these real fancy dresses, and, and puff sleeves, and lace, and, and gee, you know, and, 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 and so with a little bit of black jack, Jack Daniels, and, and an ironing board, and a tall stool, and you learn how to iron left and right-handed, and that's pretty, because that's the way you got to do it, otherwise you go crazy jumping up and down. Uh, and, and I remember, I had my oldest girl, Linda, uh, had this most beautiful dress you just just ever want to know. It was just glorious. Uh, it was a full peasant type dress with 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 dark brown, and it had just nothing but rims of lace, white lace, 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 and a lace yoke. It was just magnificent thing. I was ironing that thing, and I scorched it. The lace, and I got to thinking about that, and had a couple drinks. And I came up with a perfect solution to that particular dress. For the rest of the night, that's another two and a half hours, 
and the rest of that bottle of Jack Daniels, I scorched all the rest of the lace to match. <laughs> Made sense to me. Man, that rotten kid wouldn't wear it anymore. I couldn't pass it down the rest of the girls. I worked for this company in, Southern, in Northern California, worked in South San Francisco, and, and there was another company that we had to do a lot of business with, and it was the main office of the company that fired me in Los Angeles. And they had to do business with me, and I was the head honcho in that particular division, and they, this company that I hated detested every one of the rotten, no-good, filthy slobs that existed there, they had to come talk to me. Talk about revenge. They had to. And I didn't like them, and I told them I didn't like them. And finally, there was some young lady in their production control department that seemed to be honest, seemed to be willing and very friendly, and I said, you go talk to her. Her name was Peggy. And after a period of time, even though I had absolutely no intention of dating because I was off of women, I was the perfect husband, I was the perfect father, I was the mother, I was the best goddamn person you ever want to know raising kids, I learned how to cook. Oh, I am a fabulous pie baker, you know? And I did all sorts of good things with my ironing. And, and I met this gal, and, and I was going to hire her, and I took her out on dates. I, was, I took her blind dates, first blind dates. Now, what a disgusting beginning. First of all, she looked eight feet tall, and I like little ones. The dress she was wearing, I could have swore she was wearing faulty. And I walk up in that that grubby little place that she lived in, and she sends this little child down there with raggedy nightgown on, poor little waif. God, she wasn't taking care of her kids like I take care of my kids. Jesus. And so we went out and they took her out to dinner, and we had a wonderful time, and she attempted to molest me, and... We all, <laughs> the book tells me we all have sexual problems, you know. We wouldn't be human if we didn't. And, and, and she was very forward, <laughs> and I was very sick. <laughs> and in a relatively short period of time, we decided to get married. We blended our children together. I had the five little girls, and she had a boy and a girl, and the car and the television set. And <laughs> And enough smarts to when she when she canceled her when she wrote out the check to close her checking account she wrote it out to exactly the precise penny and and it cleared the bank and, and I couldn't imagine anybody that knew that much <laughs> and I told her I said honey I didn't either I said baby stick with me I'll show you things you've never seen and we'll go places you've never gone and we'll do things you've never done and by God I did it <laughs> who would have ever dreamed <laughs> that after a period of time of this the, this fabulous start that we have it could have degenerated into an endurance contest the ice queen that warm, beautiful lady that, for reasons totally obscure to me, would suddenly turn into the most cold, distant, unfeeling person I've ever seen. And when she turned into the Ice Queen, 
she'd go into her ice palace, which was the, her side of the bed. Oh, God. I wonder, where did it all go? Now, we had a funny little gimmick that uh, we thought was kind of funny. I thought it was kind of stupid, to be honest with you. But she, she wanted to do it, and, and I thought it was found fair that her parents had done it. Her parents, and she talked about it, if you heard it, her parents were two of God's greatest people. They were just absolutely beautiful people. I loved them dearly. Uh, they, her father was as close to a father as I've known, uh, because my father died relatively early in his life because of the disease of alcoholism. But they had a little gimmick, and, and their little gimmick was that, that their marriage was a renewable pact once a year. Okay, and, and on the day of their anniversary is when they decided whether they were going to continue for another year. Now, that's the only time that you could discuss the problems. And when you react, if you were foolish enough to do that, then you were guaranteed to go 364 just to make it work. And I want you to know there was many anniversaries that I was conspicuous by my absence. But I didn't want to look at her. And I didn't want her to look at me. And I knew for a cold fact that if she asked me, I'd say, I can't stand this goddamn thing any longer. But then it deteriorated to that. And one day, my life changed. And I say that because it didn't. It's not because of any, anything I had. I remember my last drunk. It was not my last drink. It was my last drunk. A friend of mine came into the office. A friend of mine. I don't, I, that's a lie because I didn't have any friends. I, didn't, I kept pulling the peg. I said, what does this guy want? He keeps hanging around me. He, and he came to me and I, I loaned him enough money to buy a car. Because all of his money was tied up in a divorce settlement. And uh, he came by the office. The divorce is over. He's going to pay me back the money. He said, let's go celebrate. And he was ahead of me because he'd had a few drinks. And I hurried up to catch him. And I was successful doing that. And, uh, and he got drunk, dreadfully drunk. And, and they had rang the bell on me, and I didn't know that at the time. And he wound up going to jail. And I wound up sleeping on my couch, which was the warmest place in town. And my daughter woke me up, and she said, Daddy... Uh, Bob is in jail with, and he needs you to come bail him out. You know, and the, the handwriting was on the wall for me. And I want to tell you that my time had come and I didn't know that. Because I might have protested if I had known that. But my time had come. Uh, I went to the jail and I grabbed the book to, to keep busy while I was uh, waiting for him to get out of that damn place. And, and it was a Reader's Digest condensed volume, and it was the 1970, March of 1976, Reader's Digest condensed volume, and I read it from cover to cover except for one story that I would refuse to read, because if you ever look at that particular volume, you'll see that there is a story in there, and, I and you'll know why I didn't want to read it, because it was the stupidest thing I've ever seen in a book. It was the life story of a man by the name of Bill W. And my time had come, and I didn't know it, and I didn't read that book, and I got this guy out, and and he went to a place called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I really didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. I had never heard about it. I'd heard it, it just, but I had never spent a half a second trying to figure out what the hell it was, because it was nothing that would ever affect me. Not one time with all the drinking that I had to do did I have any conscious 
knowledge is the fact that I might have some problems with alcohol. I knew that it was out of sense of desperation and the only way that I knew to kill this awful thing that was up here was to get enough alcohol in there, this sense of desperation that I talked about. That's the only thing that could shut it down. And despite the prices I had to pay, my kids, who I loved dearly, had run from me and were gone. They couldn't stand him. They couldn't stand me. The woman I was married to had turned into this thing. And I was just... didn't know what the hell was happening. I had tried so dreadfully hard to get it right. I given it, I thought, my undivided attention to be a good father, a good husband, a good citizen. I don't want to hurt anybody anymore, and I didn't know how to do that. But my time had come. And he went to Alcoholic Thomas. And he started talking to me about it. And he finally persuaded me, John, why don't you go? And I went with him. I went to my first meeting. I was four days without a drink when I went to my first meeting. I don't know why I was four days without a drink. I just didn't drink. And that particular day is the one day, the one day I went to that first meeting is the only day that I can ever remember in my entire life wanting a drink. Wanting a drink so very damn bad, and I didn't drink. And the only reason I didn't drink was because I was coming to see you. And I'd be damned if I'd walk into a meeting of alcoholics and smell like a brewery. That's the only reason I didn't drink. And it's the first time and only time that I know of in my entire life. I wanted to, and I didn't drink. I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you guys were cold. You didn't appreciate me. I have a man that, the second man that insulted me in sobriety. He was the second man I met. The first guy insulted me. He looked at me, he said to me, he inferred that I didn't have enough guts to stay sober for 90 days, and I said I was, by the way, I call that man sponsor today. Uh, but he said to me, he said, John, he said, one of the first things that I do when I'm looking at a newcomer is I want to see if there's anybody home. Is there anything left? What's there? If I can get them mad, I'll get them mad. I'll do anything to find somebody back there. And he said, I couldn't find anybody with you. But I found something with you. I could see what was happening. And I thought it was weird. I would have left if I had been in my own car, but I was with my friend. And I was trapped there. And my story in sobriety, I came home that night and I bought a book. You said you were alcoholic. I sounded, I was uh, willing to go along with that. And so I said I was an alcoholic. As a matter of fact, they made the mistake of calling on me in my first meeting. And I told them the reason I was there it was obviously with my brilliant mind. I said, I'm just here to find out what the creeps do on a Tuesday night. And I found out you're all a bunch of creeps. And they let me come back anyway. That was on a Tuesday night. Four days without a drink. My friend called me the next Friday and he said, you want to go to another meeting? And I said, I don't care if I do. So he picked me up and we went to another meeting, and you were nicer. And he called me up the next Tuesday. He said, you want to go to a meeting? I said, don't mind if I do. And so you guys, and he called me up Friday, and he said, John, you want to go to another meeting? I said, looking forward to it. And by God, you were smiling, and you were nice. And I called him up on Saturday, you want to go to a meeting? He said, nope. I said, what's the matter? Don't you want to go? 
and I had to go to my first meeting alone. And they still were nice. They didn't even know me. From that moment to this, my life has gotten better. I got fell in love. I fell in love with you. Because you loved me. When I didn't have anything. I was awestruck by what was happening. I wanted this thing so bad and I didn't know if I could get it, but I wanted it. And you said there were simple steps to take. And I said, I will try them. And I looked at those things. And I knew full well that if there was any problem I was going to have, there was nothing I didn't want to do, but there was some problem areas. And I knew for a cold fact his God business was going to nail me. Because that third step was a heavyweight for me, and I didn't know whether I could make it or not. But I tried, and I worked, and I studied, and I went crazy with it. And it was a, at that time there was some tapes by good old Chuck C., Palomesa Retreat. And I was mesmerized with that tape. I was absolutely gaining for that tape, the big book, and meetings. And that's all I did virtually for four months. I was so crazy with it, with the teachings that coming off of that tape. And I'd go to sleep with them. And, and, and if I wasn't asleep when that tape was done, I'd turn it over and I'd, and I'd listen to the other part. And I'd listen to four or five hours a day at Chuck. And, and when we had an occasion to first meet him, I walked into a meeting. Chuck came to Northern California. And, and, and I'm looking there, and there's this guy all dressed up in his white suit. There's God, you know. And, and he spoke, and, I'm, and for an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, it was Chuck. Uh, I didn't breathe, you know. And when it was all over with, I'm standing there and kind of in a daze, and Peggy says, do you want to go up and meet him? And I'm a shy, sensitive sort of guy. Meet him. Shit, come on. Her voice was cold and forward. And, and she walked up and put her arm around Chuck. And Chuck was talking to somebody. You know, Chuck, he just put his arm around her. And after one, he turned around and gave her a kiss. Jesus Christ, I didn't learn to touch people by that. And, and then she looked at him and she said, Chuck, you don't know me, but I've been sleeping with you for the last four and a half months. <laughs> and Chuck said, pretty good, wasn't I? <laughs> The great events have come to pass for me since I got sober and got involved in this thing because the first thing I had to do is accept your challenge and I accepted it as a challenge because you said step three, I knew step three was my problem and you said that I must choose my own conception. And that was a challenge. And I did that. I sat down and I chose my own conception. And I too had that moment of clarity. My moment of clarity occurred four months sober when all hell broke loose and I knew then what it was like to be a drunk. I knew now why my kids were gone from me. I knew why I was married to that ice queen. I knew all of the things and the havoc and the desolation and the, the agony and the pain that this disease had called me, caused me and those around me. And I said, if I live through this goddamn two and a half hours, and that's what it was in San Diego, I call it two and a half hours of hell, which was the most dramatic revelation I have ever had. If I live through this thing and get rid of this thing, I have the information to go work these 12 steps. And I came home and I was catapulted. Catapulted through the 12 steps. God, as I understand, God has done more for me than you would ever know. 
I just roared through the steps. And it wasn't because of, of, of virtue. It wasn't because of anything other than the fact that I was catapulted by a force greater than myself. And, and the, it is my... My time had come. That's all I can comment about. It wasn't virtue. It, my time had come even before I knew it. I remember my children were starting to call me and talk to me. And, and I was just, what do you want to talk to me for? Who want to talk to me for years, you know? And, and my daughter once called me, and she, she called me from Nebraska. And she said, you want to talk to me? And she wanted to ask my advice. And, and this is mind-boggling, you know? And, and we're talking for a little bit, and I said to her, honey, did you know that I'm an alcoholic anonymous? And she says, Yes, Daddy, I know. Uh, can I tell you something? And I said, well, certainly, honey. You can tell me anything you like. <laughs> Small amount of spiritual pride in there, but... And then this is what she said, well, Daddy, you know, about... I've been sober a couple months. And she said, what well, I want to know, I want to tell you is that three or four months ago, we started the Bible study class. And I said, that's grand. Everybody should get to know God and... <laughs> and, and, and she said, well, one of the things that we decided to do in this Bible study class is, is going to pick some poor soul and pray for him. <laughs> and I am, you know, my time had come at force greater than myself. <laughs> there was nothing I could do about it. I mean, even a ninth step work, ninth step work, I, I roared through my ninth step uh, and, and I'm not talking about roared through it. I got, I got moved up and down the state of California. People I hadn't seen for 30 years would appearing in front of my face. And, 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 and I finished my list and I kind of stunned just like this. Where, 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 you know, where, where, where I go now? And Peggy says, I have a list. I <laughs> said, <laughs> go for it. I'll have some of that too. And then she said, and then this is, this just shows you what my ninth step was like. Just, Roaring through it. When I talk about catapulted, I mean catapulted by a force infinitely stronger or greater than anything I've ever known before or since. Is it, uh, she said, what about David C? I said, oh, God. This old fella. Uh, <laughs> at one time, I had loaded a gun. I go blow him away. And he wasn't there. And I talked to him on the telephone and I told him, look over your shoulder the rest of your life. And if you don't see me first, you're dead. I, he wasn't on my list. <laughs> but he was on Peggy's list. <laughs> and she kept better score than I did. <laughs> and I walk in the telephone. We were at a bowling alley when she comes up with this name. And I walk in, I walk in the, into my own, into the house. His phone's ringing, you know. And... <laughs> and I pick it up, and it's my daughter, who was the same daughter, was in Nebraska at the time. And, and we chatted for a little bit, because she's still talking to me, and I just amazed at this stuff. And, and, and I said, by the way, honey, do you, do you ever have any idea whatever happened to David C? Because yeah, we're talking about 15 years, maybe it's gone past. I don't know where in the hell this guy's at. And she said, yes, I do, Daddy, why? And I said, well, i got a nice step i got to do for him. And, and do to him or for him or for me because I have found a way by which I can stay sober for the rest of my life provided I do certain simple things. And one of the things that I must do is make amends to him. And she said, just a minute, he's standing right beside me. <laughs> Fabulous things that happened to me. I 
and turned at home one day, and I had the just had the wildest feeling in my in my stomach, you know. And I was a couple of months sober, and I didn't know what the hell it was. And, and, and I broke the peg because I share. I have made sometimes the mistake, but always the joy of sharing everything with my wife. Oh, boy, I'll tell you, if you want sobriety, try it, huh? Uh, and I come running home over there and I said, I got this feeling in my, my, my stomach, I don't know what it is. And she said, well, well did anything happen? I said, no, if, it, if something happened, I'd probably be able to identify it. I just got this awful feeling. And she said, well, is it good or bad? And I said, well, it's probably good, and, 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 but I don't have anything to feel good about. And, and she said, well, what would you call it? If you're going to call it something. And I said, impending good. I've had impending good <laughs> from that time to this. My life has gotten better. <laughs> I'm married to a weird woman. If you heard her, you know that's true. And one of the things that she does is she has a relationship with God that prior to sobriety was the most disgusting thing I've ever heard in my life. But I started listening to her because she came, became, it's amazing how wise she became when I got sober. And, and we had, at the time I got sober, uh, we had just built a house, a new house in Los Gatos, and, and, and builders, when they build new homes and, and they plant lawns, they don't plant lawns, they plant weeds. And that's just something you need to know. And, and we were pulling weeds out, and, and I got invisible. I got so hugely involved in sobriety, but it was all important to me, and I didn't have time for pulling weeds out. I mean, I was out there doing God's business and, and saving people and doing all the right things. And I had arrived, and, and, and I came home one night from a meeting, and here's Peggy. She's standing there, and she's got a funny look on her face, and her hands were on her hips, and she said, well, I did it. And I said, what'd you do? And she said, I turned it over to God. And I said, what'd you turn over? She said, I turned the lawn over to God. Said, oh, Christ, you can't do that. And she said, my God cares about the lawn. <laughs> so, I started looking at that lawn. And I'm watching that lawn. <laughs> and after a while, I forgot about the lawn. And I came home one night, and I looked at that weed-infested lawn, and I said, oh, my God. It was beautiful. And it was green. And there was no weeds in it. And I went in to Peg, and I said, honey, did you see what's happening to our lawn? <laughs> <laughs> and she said yes <laughs> and this is why that would normally be her story but I, I got involved in it and so that, that was when Karen our daughter who we heard speak was, was having some serious problems with her husband at the time and, and we were trying to get her in Al-Anon and, and we were going to maneuver I was going to maneuver her in to, to Al-Anon and I said honey come and see the miracle in our front yard see God's lawn and see what he can do and, and I'm standing there one day and I'm saying wait a minute now it's 
a little bit of green over here, and oh, no, that's a little thin. So I get this stuff from, I, I have never done anything in the yard whatsoever other than display. But I'm going to go to, I went to the store and I bought this gunk and a big roller and, and I rolled it over but it helped dry out. I planted weeds. I got a huge lesson from them. The lesson was I don't screw around with God's business. I was a couple of years sober, I'm not sure when. And I was in an outlaw meeting. I was listening to Peggy, she was talking. She is a beautiful speaker. And I just want to know, you know, if you thought that she was so good, I'll tell you the real truth about this woman. And I was in this meeting, and, and she was talking along, and then she got this funny look, funny look on her face. And then she did, she put her finger right here. <laughs> you know what I used to do? And I sat on the edge of my seat, and I don't know what she used to do. I wasn't there a lot of time, and I wanted to know what she used to do. And she said, John used to be so susceptible for bronchitis, because he got awfully puny there. It's the last. And you know what I used to do? And I said, come on, woman, tell me what you used to do. She said, he would go, she, she always used the theme language, she'd say he'd pass out on the couch in the dead of winter, and I'd open up all the doors and windows, and I'd turn off the furnace, and I'd go to bed, and I'd wake up early in the morning, and I'd go, and I'd, Close all the doors and windows and turn the furnace on. And he'd wake up and he'd be all congested. <laughs> and he'd go to the hospital with pneumonia. And you know, you can't drink when you're in the hospital with pneumonia. And then she said that thing that all Alanons can understand because here she's nothing but concerned about me. To keep me from drinking, she's willing to kill me. <laughs> and then that great Alamon phrase is, besides, who's ever been convicted for murder by pneumonia? <laughs> this is a fabulous business. I am absolutely enthralled with you. You promised me when I got here that I would be free. You promised me if I did certain things that I would have a freedom that few men would ever know. And freedom is mine. And the reason I say that is I can attest to that. I can absolutely attest that freedom is mine and will remain mine. And the only thing that can ever stop me from having my freedom is me. Because you gave me the tools to do that. A few years ago I decided it was time for me to stop smoking. And I have believed in prayer. I believe totally in prayer because I have a fabulous relationship with the God of my understanding. And people said, well, use the steps. And I didn't want to stop smoking, so I'm going to use the damn steps. They said, ask for willingness. And I don't want willingness because I knew that God would give it to me and I would throw it away. And I don't believe in frivolous prayer. And I thought about it for a while because it was time for me to stop smoking physically. I had smoked for a long, long time. And it was time to give it up. And I came up with a perfect solution to that prayer. And I went to the God of my understanding and I said, Father, make it difficult for me to continue to smoke. And he did. I was in, within 24 hours, I'm in a hospital with a heart attack. They, and they were crazy trying to save me. And I'm laying on that table and I'm listening to those people talk about me. So it took me a while to get me in that hospital and I'm going dingy and I got 
Now, my friends who talk about me being a pure, fine and pure alcoholic insist that I turned addict that day because of all the crap they, they were putting in me. But I was laying in that table and they were talking about me. And one of them, the, the, the conversation, as I remember, went something to this effect. Look, we, it looks like we're going to lose him. We've got to do this. I don't know what the hell it was. Oh, God, it looks like we've lost him. Oh, shit, we've lost him. Well, you know, I get your attention in a hurry. <laughs> well, I thought they were not joking, you know. I really did believe that. And, and so I tell you the freedom or the feeling that I had at that time. The freedom that is mine is that I realized at that time that if they were right, that I had gone. And I have a God of my very own who will do for me what I cannot do for myself. And I had that feeling of, of joyful anticipation. Impending good was mine. And I said, my God, I'm now going to go. Because if you do believe in God, dying is but a geographic. And I... That's a hell of a move, I'll tell you. Now, I'm running over, but I'll finish in a hurry. <laughs> anyway, that's the feeling I had, intending good. And I had died. And then I thought for a moment. And I looked over the wreckage of my past, and I looked over the people that I loved. And I knew that I was free. Because, by God, since I have been sober, I have lived. I mean, and I have had I have lived. And everybody I love knows it because I've told them and I've showed them and I've demonstrated the love and I was free. Certainly I would like to stay around a while, but I was free to go. I was free to stay. And that's when I realized that the ninth step had totally worked. In all of its implication, I was absolutely free. And I said earlier that the only one that can take it away from me was me. And about they got me well enough to have some surgery. And a week or so later, I'm, they're going to operate me, and as the doctor said, we'll split you open this far. And, and Peggy was, I said, they're going to do it early in the morning. I told Peggy to go on home, get a good night's sleep. She was going to come in and see me in the morning, or awake. And then I started walking. It was a little early to go to bed, because I knew they were going to put me out, and, and I'm walking. And as each step goes, terror came back. And I walked around that hospital bed room. And in each step, I went deeper into despair. I had taken away my freedom. I became agonized. And I was full of pain. And I knew that I was going to die. And then as happens to me so many times in sobriety, the God of my understanding disclosed himself to me and said, no, John. Your freedom is yours. I will never take it away. Don't you. And so the feeling of intending good came back. And then I went to sleep. And from that moment to this, I have never been willing to relinquish my freedom. This has been a fabulous weekend. I have enjoyed it and I have learned so much. Because I am absolutely convinced all the way through that life is a celebration. 
An absolute celebration, and I know of no place in the face of this earth that life is celebrated more than in meetings just like this in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm so grateful that you love me enough to reach out and bring me to you when I couldn't find you in the first place. And for that, I shall be eternally grateful. Thank you very much.